You're listening to The Progress Report on the Harbinger Media Network. You can listen to many other incredible left-wing podcasts on Harbinger, like Big Shiny Takes, one of our favorites. Their latest podcast features a thorough and hilarious examination of a couple of characters in the Jordan Peterson extended universe. And at Harbinger, we're building something that's challenging right-wing corporate media dominance from coast to coast. So get access to exclusive shows and other supporter-only content at harbingermedianetwork.com. Now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to The Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're recording today here in Amiskwichiwiskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory. And today we're joined by uh, Mark Serpa, Frankur, and Rabinder Uppel, who directed and produced a new documentary that is hitting the film festival circuit really hard right now, and which actually just opened up last week at the Calgary Underground Film Festival, and it's called No Visible Trauma. You may have also seen a 44-minute version that these two uh, folks produced that covered a lot of the same material. Uh, and it was on CBC, and it was called Above the Law. And we're very happy to have them on the show. Mark and Rabinder, welcome to The Progress Report. Thank you so much for having us. Pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, thanks. And so before we get into chatting about your documentary and what it's all about, uh, you were making news last week. You are, uh, you've made a documentary that the Calgary Police Service, specifically uh, one particular member of the Calgary Police Service, doesn't want anyone to see, or at least they tried. Uh, what can you tell us about the injunction that Constable Chris Harris filed uh, that was where he was trying to stop the, the screening of your movie? Yeah, so last Monday there was an emergency injunction uh, filed by Constable Christopher Harris, an employee with the Calgary Police Service, which sought to prevent the further screening of our film, uh, and which would have applied our understanding both to cup docs and then, you know, beyond uh, without any particular limit uh, on the grounds of what he claims is defamation. Uh, there's sort of two elements to his, uh, to his complaint, uh, which uh, essentially boils down to the accusation that we have mistranscribed uh, the word should as did. Uh, we are, of course, confident and adamant that we, uh, in fact, got that right. And uh, the other is just that, broadly speaking, that we have sort of miscontextualized his role um, in in the Clayton Prince incident, uh, which we can, I think, discuss in a little bit more detail down the line. Uh, again, we are confident that um, that we we got that right as well, and there's a fair bit of um, you know uh, <laughs> of evidence to support it, including his own sworn testimony at court. So. Uh, the injunction was filed on Monday and we were, you know, up all night preparing uh, an affidavit and a bunch of other stuff. And then Tuesday we went into court. Uh, and when I say went into, of course, this was virtual. And uh, in the end, uh, the judge uh, ruled in our favor and rejected the injunction. But it was, uh, you know, this is our first time uh, facing legal action. And it was definitely a sort of high octane uh, week or so for us and just a little bit bewildering. Uh, we were very surprised that that this was uh, something that had materialized. I mean, this is uh, the conversation in question is about 20 seconds of a 97 minute film. Um, and Harris is never named in the film. So I think that was sort of doubly surprising to us because the minute he filed the injunction and the lawsuit on Monday, everything became public and obviously far, far more attention brought to uh, Constable Christopher Harris than ever would have been if he'd never brought this to light. So it, it was a real surprise to us that it went forward. 
congratulations, Constable Harris, you Barbara Streisand yourself. I think uh, that, that would be my analysis of it. Congratulations on winning uh, your injunction as well. That that would be an, an extraordinary decision by a judge to restrict the screening of a movie for a a uh, an, an apparent mistranscription of one word in an otherwise 97-minute film. Uh, absolutely wild uh, case. And, and again, I'm glad, glad that you won. Glad that your movie was able to be screened. The defamation lawsuit is obviously another uh, huge fucking headache. And we will, um, uh, we can talk about that at the end of the pod, but um, you know, as someone who is facing a, a similar suit, I just want to say that like, we absolutely need like anti-slap legislation in this province. And, and, uh, and it's quite clear that powerful people and institutions are using the courts in order to silence speech uh, that they don't like. But that is a podcast and a conversation for another day. I think uh, I think since we're in the audio form here, I, I think we should definitely take a quick listen to the clip that caused all of this in the first place. Can you can you give us the context of where this clip is in the movie? What's led up to it? What, what's about to happen? What people are about to listen to? Sure. So the uh, clip in question is is actually a recording from uh, the in car video system uh, of uh, Calgary Police. Uh, this is, uh, you're hearing, this is in the aftermath of the violent uh, arrest of a young indigenous man uh, named Clayton Prince back in 2016. Uh, very, very briefly, he had been pulled over. And this is, for those who know Calgary, this is sort of right off of uh, Glenmore and uh, McLeod Trail. There's sort of a sushi restaurant and then a diamond store, I believe. So basically he had been pulled over and uh, he initially sort of had got out of the car, was standing there, and then at some point chose to run away and ran around the building. Uh, officers descending, you know, multiple cars sort of arrive on the scene. And uh, Constable Harris is actually the officer who sort of came out of his car with, uh, drew his gun and, um, you know, and told uh, Prince to get on the ground. At which point in time, uh, we can see in a video from a different car uh, that several officers uh, jump on him and basically begin to pummel him. Uh, He was left with a punctured lung, uh, I believe, fractured ribs is that right bob and yeah so i uh, quickly he had gotten down on the ground and put his hands behind his head that's what the video shows and Correct. then the officers land on him and he did uh suffer broken ribs and a collapsed lung and then uh had this key shoved behind uh behind his neck at, in a, at a known pressure point and that's what the judge found yeah so he so and and basically and spent five days recovering in the hospital it's worth noting uh, the charges, and also keep in mind, the charges against him were dropped uh, as a result of the sort of extrajudicial punishment, presumably as a result of the extrajudicial punishment that he'd received. Uh, so Constable Harris was a witness to this. Uh, he was not involved in the beating. Uh, he is heard on the video, and this came up in court, yelling, among other things, uh, YouTube alert, YouTube alert, uh, apparently, you know, trying to uh, call attention to uh, the fact that, uh, you know, these officers were in public and uh, that might be a problem. Uh, in any case, after the incident, uh, he at the time was training a uh, recruit and uh, a young woman and they're standing around talking and they have sort of a lengthy conversation. And And he sort of starts it out. He says, well, what you saw here did not happen. Or as he contests, what you saw here should not happen. Um, so that, and then the conversation goes on from there. There's a number of troubling aspects to it. He states that, you know, had this guy in the white van been filming, that wouldn't be very good. We hear that and we're like, well, why, what do you mean? It wouldn't be very good. Like if somebody was filming this clear case of criminality, which again was later proven in court as an assault, uh, why would that be not good that somebody would, uh, 
you know, watch <laughs> and have a record of this uh, inappropriate behavior that's happened. Uh, and there's a number of other troubling aspects uh, to that conversation. And then subsequently, the choice that, uh, you know, after this had happened, while Constable Harris, to be fair, did eventually testify against the other officers. And, you know, kudos to him for that. He certainly, uh, in the wake of the incident, did not say take the, you know, his, the recruits and say, OK, well, we're going directly to professional standards. We're going to file a complaint. What we saw here was, you know, was totally inappropriate and presumably illegal. Um, so, yeah, so that's sort of part of the broader uh, context uh, in which uh, Harris was involved in that incident. And he, again, basically appears very briefly in the film, in the in the video. And it's worth pointing out um, you know, that this there's so many aspects to this incident and partly why we wanted to focus on it, uh, including the fact that the main camera that was uh, you know, focused on, uh, that was showing the beating was turned off mid-beating. It's hard to imagine that that wasn't uh, done on purpose. Just an incredible malfunction. Really unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. so here is the clip in question. So uh, if you do have headphones, put them in. Uh, yeah, let's listen to it. Right. Now, what you saw here? Just a little light street justice. Yeah, that's Just right. the best kind, really. Uh, I mean, I here did. Uh, I, you know, it is low quality. It is some shitty like dashboard mic or whatever. Uh, you know, I, I can see why Harris would would maybe dispute it, but then I don't understand why he would bring attention to himself in the case of filing a lawsuit. Now we all know who he is, and, and whether he said should or did, I, I think it's relatively immaterial considering all the things you mentioned. He's barely in the movie. I mean, the giggling response by the the recruit is is also a huge uh, red flag to me as well. I don't know how you how you feel about it. I think it's very revealing, right? Um, and it it really gives you the sense that this is. I mean, you know, there's nervousness there, but also it doesn't seem like anyone is really particularly surprised or thrown off at this kind of thing. And the way that Harris talks about the whole incident as well, you really get the sense that. This isn't the first time he's seen something like this, and, and the way he does talk about it, that you know, this is this is a, an occurrence that he's witnessed before, and that he doesn't like it because you know it it, it causes problems, and maybe somebody would you know uh, the the longer conversation itself is actually quite horrifying in some ways because of how um, workaday it all sounds, as though somebody were you know driving a forklift improperly as opposed to just very badly beating a, a human being and also applying, uh, to quote them, pain compliance techniques, which is, if you've seen them do it, it looks something like torture because you're you're twisting limbs and you're really putting people in a, an extreme amount of discomfort so that they, they do what you're trying to make them do. But again, Prince had already surrendered at that point, so it just seems totally gratuitous. And the, the fact that that would be talked about as though it were just another day is pretty disturbing. Well, and, and I'll just point out, I think that like, it's so easy to sort of, uh, again, the normalcy of this, of this type of, uh, I mean, excessive force. It's just, but like, you know, again, the guy is on the ground, he's surrendered. There's no indication of a weapon or anything face down on the ground. Like the, the notion that only one of the, uh, at least four officers that jumped on him, uh, or at least three, 
um, you know, was eventually convicted. It's just like, what is the need to all like, you know, dogpile this guy? And then, oh, and and you and then you're you're pointing out the fact that uh, after you've all jumped on him, that he is sort of like, you know, squirming or physically reacting. Might it be because you're on him, like beating him? Like the, the, again, the notion that 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 this is even remotely acceptable, um, really, I think, uh, beggars belief. And uh, you know, points us to, and these are some of the questions that we're interested in too, is just sort of the broader. Uh, you know, issues around use of force and what is and isn't, you know, because a lot there's a lot of defenses offered by, say, uh, you know, the Calgary police or whatever that, oh, well, these are sort of standard, uh, you know, these are standard compliance techniques. It's like, OK, well, maybe we need to, like, have a conversation about, like, what are appropriate <laughs> compliance techniques and, and how they're being applied. Um, so, yeah, very Fair enough. Uh, I, I think uh, while the lawsuit and dealing with the injunction and all that was... Uh, I mean, I, I don't imagine it was very fun. It did get you a bunch of free earned media. So, I mean, for your, for your documentary. So thanks for that, at least, uh, Constable Harris. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, I mean, that's, I mean, look, it's, I don't, you know, we just got our first bill for legal fees and it's a whopping 18 grand, you know, so we're not, it's like, that's, uh, you know, you could also buy a lot of advertising for that. Um, you know, as a side note, uh, you know, we're doing a GoFundMe uh, campaign that we made our first target already in th- under three days of 10 grand. And we've just upped it to reflect the, the, the specific dollar amount of the bill in question, which is $18,073. Um, you know, we're also, we, you know, we do have errors in emissions insurance, but uh, this is also we're waiting on confirmation as to what that'll cover. There is at, at, at minimum a $10,000 deductible. Um so, and again, this is very unusual. Like it's very, uh, very rare that anyone actually has to go down this road. Um, you know, I mean, it's maybe when you're making documentaries about, you know, dogs and cats and, and sort of lighter subject matter, it's not such a concern, but, um, anyways, it's a, it's a strange, all right, all right. I, 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 the cases that we could spend all day talking about this, this lawsuit, but there is a documentary here. Uh, oh, and yeah, it is a good documentary. It's one, one, one that I, I wouldn't say, uh, enjoyed is probably the wrong word because, I got mad a bunch listening to it or sorry, watching it, but it, it it's incredibly well done. It's an incredibly important document about how broken the institution of policing is uh, in Calgary, as well as how broken all of the other institutions that revolve around the police are that are supposed to keep them accountable. You know, the Crown Prosecutor Service, ACERT, uh, the Alberta Serious Incident Response Team, uh, even the government. And... And so I could read, you know, the promo copy, but uh, you have, you know, spent years making this documentary. Why should people watch this film and what is this film all about? Yeah, so very briefly, I mean, we're it's a film that's looking at, uh, broadly speaking, police brutality and accountability uh, at the Calgary Police Service. We look at several uh, incidents of excessive force, uh, including a fatal shooting, a, a wellness check uh, gone very, very wrong. Uh, we also look at, um, like you said, more, more broadly speaking, at the accountability mechanisms, which in Alberta includes ACERT, the Alberta Serious Incident Response Team. Uh, we look at the Crown and some of the problems in terms of our parent problems in terms of uh, uh, what's been pointed to as double standards at play in terms of the, prose- uh, the prosecution of uh, police officers. Um, we also sort of give a very brief window into the quagmire that is the professional standards uh, process at the Calgary Police Service, uh, basically um, the responding to complaints, the uh, internal sort of discipline um, side of things, which is uh, quite important as well. 
so it's a film, uh, you know, I think it's obviously of, of keen interest to Calgarians, to Albertans, but, uh, you know, a lot of the, the issues that we're looking at are certainly by no means, uh, you know, uh, endemic to Calgary or to Alberta. There's a, a ton of similarity uh, across uh, our country and beyond. So we think that there's a certainly a local appeal, but a very broad relevance as well. And to add to that quickly, I think the thing that we're able to do in a in a documentary that's really important is actually track over a period of time the impact on real people, uh, specifically Gottfried, uh, the, the Heffernans who have, you know, their family has been very damaged by this whole the, by the shooting of and the killing of their son, Anthony, and uh, also the the Howarth family. So the the impact on real you know human beings, not just that there is a bureaucracy and that there is this whole broken process, but also how does that damage or affect people's lives? And and you know what are the consequences of this kind of um, lack of accountability on a human level? That's part of what you know makes I think the film work and uh, makes it impactful. Yeah, I mean, Godfrey to die is is one of the protagonists in your piece, and and his story is you know an incredibly arresting one, right? A a, a young man who was essentially kidnapped by the police, dropped off in a massive construction site in minus you know twenty eight weather, and then when another officer showed up, had the shit beaten out of him, and then was charged with assaulting a police officer. And this guy is still not right physically, mentally, years later, right? Oh yeah, I mean it's and 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 this so the film all started with us when we met Godfred. Uh, we were introduced to his case uh, by his uh, then uh, defense attorney uh, shortly after uh, he had been acquitted of assaulting an officer. But uh, you know, this was for us what what uh, really threw us down this whole this whole path that we've been on for the last five years. Uh, just the uh, multiplicity of things that went wrong, both from the initial interaction with the uh, the officers who give him this kind of uh, detain him apparently without any sort of due legal process uh, claim without any evidence that he was drunk. He maintains that he had not been drinking, uh, given this kind of ur- urban starlight tour. And then, of course, calls for help. 911 officer, another officer arrives and, and beats and tasers him. Um, so this and then and then moving on also to the prosecution, uh, the fact that the Crown had seen fit to prosecute this man. It's it's amazing if you actually look at the uh, the the investigation uh, prepared by um, by CPS, uh, and Tom Engel, his now uh, attorney points out in the film, he, you know, he says, well, this is an investigation An investigation would have, you know, looked at the broader context of what had happened. It would have looked at the, you know, the footage, it would have looked at the, the different notes and the reports. What, what is the, what is the investigation said? It's one page with one line. It says constable Trevor Lindsay can be, uh, can testify to having been assaulted by the officer. Now, the amazing thing is that Lindsay actually didn't even claim, and you know, in retrospect, maybe he regrets this, but didn't even claim that uh, Godfrey had in any way physically uh, uh, assaulted him. That it was a gestural assault, which in Canada is also a type of assault. Like if you sort of get in somebody's face and make a bunch of threatening gestures, like that can be an assault. So that was the claim: was that Godfrey had sort of somehow uh, lunged or otherwise been threatening without actually having uh, touched him in any way. Um, so the fact that, you know, that the crown saw fit to, to prosecute this, I mean, it also speaks to the, the, the high esteem that, uh, officer testimony, uh, is held in that this would have seemed like a, a, in the public interest to prosecute this man based on this, uh, this, this claim. Um, so that was very disturbing for us. And that's really what started our interest in the case. Um, jump ahead to early 2017, 
uh, CPS announces charges have been filed against an officer in an, in a different case. At first, the officer hadn't been named, uh, but it was uh, it was leaked to the media that the officer was the same officer that had uh, beaten Godfrey and accused him of assault, this uh, constable uh, Trevor Lindsay. And that was the point when we really sort of sat back and said, wait a minute, we need to look at the broader accountability infrastructure here, because how is it that Godfrey, who filed a uh, very serious formal complaint with the Calgary Police Service within a month of the incident. So back at uh, in January 2014, how is it that this officer uh, unheeded, you know, continued to work the streets and was able to go on? And in, in this case, another man also in handcuffs, also caught on video, um, you know, threw him headfirst into the ground after punching him repeatedly, punches that he neglected to mention in his notes for some reason, um, uh, leaving him with a permanent brain injury that his family, uh, you know, and this is his family believes uh, was uh, intricately tied to his death of a of an overdose uh, some months later. Uh, so that was just this clusterfuck of horror that I think, um, uh, you know, kind of forced us to expand the the scope of our of our investigation. I mean, this reveal of, of Constable Lindsay you know, his, whose name was initially protected and then eventually revealed as the, the same person who had assaulted uh, Godfrey to die. It was the same person who fractured um, Mr. Haworth's skull uh, while he was handcuffed. It literally had me like yelling, swearing at my screen and gasping out loud. <laughs> like, I don't know what it's like in the movie theater when that's revealed, but it's like, oh my God. Uh, a moment that definitely stuck with me coming out of, uh, of watching this documentary and I mean, that that through line, you know, with Constable Lindsay and, and Godfrey and then Daniel Haworth is an incredibly important one. But there's another a thread in that movie that you pick up that's incredibly important as well. And that's the story uh, of Anthony Heffernan. Yeah, I mean, Anthony Heffernan's story is also just completely, completely devastating. And uh, to put it briefly, he uh, in March 2015, he was. Uh, having a relapse, he'd struggled with a cocaine addiction and was relapsing in a hotel room, a Super 8 up by the airport, and was in his room using drugs, uh, overstayed his rental, so it was well past the 11 o'clock checkout time, and the hotel staff uh, was concerned about what was going on in the room. He wasn't responding to the knocking on the door, and so they decided to call the Calgary police uh, for a wellness check. And they just wanted to make sure everybody was okay and that, you know, uh, there was nothing going on in there, et cetera. And so the police show up. And I think there's some details that that actually don't even make it into the film that are so um, troubling. So one of them is that when the police show up, they are given a tool by the hotel staff that would have let them open the door with the safety latch. So they would have been able to get around the safety latch and open the door, not kick it in and go in uh, sort of calmly. But uh, it's unclear what happened exactly. But at some point, they abandoned trying to use the this tool and decided, five officers, that they would kick in the door and go in what's called a military style, screaming and yelling. Two of the officers had their guns drawn. And within 72 seconds of kicking down that door, these five officers enter this like very, very small hotel room. And that's actually a part of the film, too, is just seeing like how small this room is. But they uh, they they barge in and they're screaming and yelling at the top of their lungs to somebody, Anthony, who's there with his hands up and apparently in some sort of drug induced state. And according to the officers, he has a, a lighter in one hand and a syringe without a needle tip, uh, as it turned out, uh, in the other hand. 
and they're screaming and yelling at him. And within 72 seconds, one officer, Constable Maurice McLaughlin, shot him four times, uh, three times in the head and once in the chest, and uh, including bullet trajectories that are almost straight down at the floor. So meaning he shot down at him when he was already on the ground. And uh, yeah, Anthony, Anthony died on the scene. And the, the Heffernan family is still totally, uh, they, they haven't, they haven't received any sort of justice in their, in their view. And uh, um, I don't know if Mark, if you want to pick up sort of what happened after Anthony was killed. Sure. I mean, and there's just, you know, I mean, there's a lot of details and a lot, a lot of ins and outs and what have you. I mean, there's just so many disturbing el- like elements to the case. You know, I always like our phrasing is that this is a, you know, now it now everybody, I think, in Canada, at least people that are interested in these issues are familiar with the concept of a wellness check. And with a, a wellness check gone wrong, uh, this is a classic in the sense of classically tragic example of that. Um, and there's many elements that are particularly disturbing. One is the fact that, you know, you had five officers in there, including a sergeant. Uh, at no point in time did the sergeant sort of instruct anyone, you know, to uh, to to fire, to shoot, you know, to shoot um, Anthony also as per. And there is some con- there's some, uh, you know, there's some conflicting elements to the to the um, the testimony as as we have access to it in the ACERT report uh, from the officers. But, you know, several of the officers had already uh, holstered their weapons and tasers and were very close to Anthony, apparently intending to just grab him. So this was not a. Uh, um, you know, a universally uh, threatening situation, certainly to all the officers in the room. And what's amazing is that when it, uh, so there's a whole lengthy process, it goes to ACERT. Um, you know, there's a number of issues with the ACERT investigation that uh, Tom Engel, for example, speaks to in the film uh, that you can see in the film, just, you know, but basic issues to do with sort of quality, like in Alberta, basically, like ACERT doesn't have its own um, forensics uh, team. They're relying on the team of the, uh, you know, the local Entity. So in this case, it was, you know, the Calgary Police Service uh, forensics team that are that are doing the the, uh, you know, the, the the crime scene investigation. So that's something that he takes issue with. Uh, there's also a challenge in the sense that, you know, uh, Maurice McLaughlin, the the shooter, you know, was never uh, never sort of uh, our understanding, you know, w- uh, was uh, did an interview or provided notes or any of that. There's he has the right not to incriminate himself. But it's also um, I think it's very hard for uh, the Heffernans to. Um, you know, to sort of accept that that's, you know, the way our system is declined, you know, is designed. You have this officer who's serving the public, they shoot and kill somebody, and then they have no obligation to sort of like, even present however stilted their side of the story, I think is also, um, I just think that's like a hard thing for them to wrap their head around. In any case, uh, Acer does their investigation. Um, they, and in the film, you know, there's several uh, recordings that are be, are released for the first time. There's an initial sort of conversation with one of the investigators when the Heffernan sort of first learn the details of what happened, you know, and it's just it's a oh boy, like I just remember the first time hearing that just the chills, uh, you know, and actually tears like it's just a very, 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 uh, you know, powerful but power like it's a tragic interaction where they're learning about what had happened to their son and their and their brother. Um, there's also a recording of a meeting that was had with uh, ACERT uh, executive director Susan Houston and others, you know, in which. Uh, she told them that she would be, uh, you know, likely be uh, recommending charges to the crown, several different charges up to and including second degree murder. Now, uh, had that gone forward, this would have been theoretically sort of the most serious prosecution of a police officer uh, in certainly that we're aware of in, in Alberta, recent Alberta history, perhaps ever. Um, 
And, you know, this is major spoiler alert all over the place, uh, but that uh, prosecution never happened. Uh, perhaps surprise, surprise. Um, and the, uh, you know, the decision of the crown, uh, why not to do that is, I think, also riddled with uh, with uh, uh, with issues. Um, and uh, as you'll see in the film, a lot of uh, sort of double standards are pointed to by uh, several folks, the Heffernans and uh, and Tom Engel, the attorney, uh, just in terms of what had happened there. No, I mean, there's a lot in, in that you just, I mean, we're talking about a film that you need to go see, but uh, so there's a lot that we're not going to cover in our talk about what's in the movie. And we don't have to cover everything because again, you should go see this movie. But I, I think one thing that it comes up and is very obvious in watching this is just the, like the uselessness of body cams, the uselessness of dash cams, um, you know, multiple instances of these being turned off or malfunctioning um you know how many times did that come up in in reporting out this documentary that these things were just proven to to not be useful for police accountability reasons well i think it's uh the body camera and the camera issue in general is one that's really it's complicated and i think the notion that you know now calgary is the first major police department in the country to have body cameras but I think what we have to say is that they're not a panacea. They're they're not going to solve the problems of accountability, and they're just uh, one possible tool. Now, uh, despite what you said, Duncan, I think there are issues. I mean, several cases in this film where if there had not been video, it's very unlikely that anything would have gone in the favor of you know justice. Uh, in in Godfrey's case, without the video, he he may have been convicted of assaulting a police officer, which would have been you know tragic and terrible and and just totally unjust. And in the in the Haworth incident, without that video recording from an adjacent uh, the Calgary Public Library building, if we hadn't had that security camera, there's it's hard to believe that uh, Constable Trevor Lindsay would have been convicted of aggravated assault uh, in the, in the Daniel Haworth incident had it not been for that camera. So I you know I think there is a reality where video is valuable, but the notion that we can just equip officers with body cameras and then we're good to go is false. And I think the, the Clayton Prince incident where you have some very damning video that gets turned off in the middle of this incident points to that very clearly. And then we've also seen other instances in Calgary, even recently where there was a, a, a tragedy uh, at Eau Claire. There was a young woman in a, I believe fourth, fourth story apartment building and officers were outside her apartment and she fell to her death. The officers were supposed to have body cameras, three of them. And According to what we've read, the all three body cameras were malfunctioning. I mean, how is that possible? How, how is it possible that all three body cameras would be malfunctioning? But more importantly, I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is, okay, you've given people body cameras. Now, what are the consequences if you misuse these things? And what are the consequences if, for example, like the Baltimore PD has been caught doing multiple times, you plant evidence, actually planting evidence and get, gets caught on body camera? Like, what are the the policies around these body cameras and this, this, this footage is as important as the cameras themselves. And I think we have to be really vigilant that they're not being abused or sort of turned backwards back on the public as a, as a use of oppression, as a tool of oppression. And yeah, it's very, it, you know, it's, it's a complicated issue, but I don't think it's uh, it's, it's a solution to the accountability problem at all. So, and just to relate specifically to, you know, the content of the film and kind of ongoing events, Back to the Clayton Prince story. So the, as per our most recent, uh, you know, response to a request for information from the Calgary Police Service, the professional conduct hearings uh, around that incident 
are yet to be complete, which again is amazing. So we're in the end of 2020. That incident was in uh, summer 2016. Um, there is the claim made oftentimes by uh, the uh, Calgary Police Service and other departments that, oh, well, we can't proceed with the professional conduct uh, complaints uh, process until the criminal charges and the process and all the appeals, which all can drag on for years and years are resolved. Uh, we uh, are working on uh, sort of an, uh, a piece or, you know, we're looking at that issue. Uh, we've been told by a number of uh, sort of uh, high level players in this in this field that that's, you know, there's actually not really any basis in law for that claim, that that's really sort of a question of convenience and a delay tactic and not actually sound that this claim that we can't proceed with professional conduct hearings has no basis uh, pending the criminal uh, investigations being resolved. Specifically, in terms of the Clayton Prince case, there's several things that go on. One is, as, as I mentioned, you know, is the, the officer who turns the, um, you know, the camera off. And, you know, it's like pretty clear contravenance of policy to have done that. There was also, there was at least, at least five cars that were on scene. Now, each car, as this is sort of what was communicated to us by Calgary Police Service, should have uh, at least one officer wearing their mic and that mic should be turned on recording. So a mic, this at the time was just audio that's tethered to the vehicle. Now, again, uh, you know, kudos to Constable Harris. He was the only one of that whole gaggle of cops who was actually wearing a mic or at the very least had it turned on. Now, albeit he was training a recruit and I'm pretty, you know, was on best behavior, I'm sure. Uh, but the other officers, uh, very curious to see when this professional, uh, these conduct, you know, proceedings go through, uh, is that addressed? And if so, what is what is the consequences for that? You know, what are the consequences for, uh, you know, really just very strongly, you know, breaking these departmental policies? And I think that a big part of the problem is that if there aren't serious consequences, uh, and this, of course, applies to body cams moving forward, I mean, to me, it's just such a violation of the public trust and such a violation of uh, just the whole, um, you know, just the whole goal of, of policing, of, uh, you know, or the presented goal of, of policing and criminal justice, if there isn't, in fact, any basic level of accountability uh, for these officers. And I'm not saying they all need to be, you know, sent out, you know, to the gulag or whatever. But, you know, I mean, these are serious, serious uh, things going on. And to me, to um, I, I don't know, this is I just think this is something that has not we are not aware of any sort of uh, criminal charges or even any like substantive uh, professional standards and love, love to be corrected and informed by the Calgary police service or ACERT that this is the case, but not aware of any, uh, incidents of sort of serious consequences or even modest consequences, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, resulting from, uh, the, you know, a failure to follow policy around cameras or other types of recordings. Yeah, I mean the rabbit hole of this debate around body cameras and, and in Edmonton the issue is dash cameras. That's what they that's the big thing that the chief is talking about introducing here in Edmonton, which which we don't have at this point, but they want to bring in as a police accountability measure. Is that yeah, I mean every once in a while you do get something god awful that happens on tape and there is a reaction and maybe you know, 40% of the time, there is some kind of consequence that happens with the cop. Maybe that percentage might be a little lower in, in, in actuality. And, and so you're like, look, here, here's a way that it helped. But it's like, I'd much rather just have that conversation around uh, defunding the police and, and moving resources and, and workers away from things like mental health wellness checks, <laughs> moving those things away from the cops and to other qualified professionals who don't have guns on their hip. Uh, to handle those situations because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, as we saw in the Anthony Heffernan case, this is a person who needed help. He did not need some, he didn't need five people with guns 
uh, surrounding him in a tiny hotel room, one of them shooting him to death. And, and this is the, the, the like, you know, we, we get into the talk about police accountability. It's why I think that black lives matter and the, the larger movement for black lives around this has it correctly, where it's just like, go after the structure of the, uh, of, of it here, the superstructure, which is that these groups are incredibly funded, incredibly powerful because of that funding. And by reallocating that money, you're, you're able to, to diminish the power of these groups. Well, yeah, I think I, you're, I mean, you're, you're hundred percent right. Uh, in, in, you know, in, in the fact that this is sort of part and parcel of a bigger discussion. Like, I think that just before we move on from the subject of video, Part of the problem is that as long as we're dealing with a situation where clearly, and I think this is a broadly speaking true across the board, you know, the testimony of police officers is held in uh, a particularly high esteem. Uh, we also have an issue in Alberta where uh, we have, are quite disturbed by and interested in uh, looking in more detail at the policy around judicial criticism of officer testimony. So basically, you know, when an officer testifies and seems to uh, lie or not be forthright or Otherwise, you know, uh, you know, befoul their testimony, of which there are several, uh, you know, instances that are, you know, appear in the film. Certainly in the Godford, uh, in the Godford uh, trial, um, you know, that there aren't sort of clear consequences for that. There is a list, a McNeil list. If anyone can get their hands on that and share it, that would be wonderful. Uh, that's maintained by the Crown. That list sort of. Um, you know, officers that basically uh, should not be called on the grounds that they have poor credibility. But I'll point out the fact that, like, you know, we're in a system where you have this list of officers who apparently are not trustworthy enough to be called to testify. And yet they continue to, broadly speaking, uh, act as police officers, be out on the street. It's really problematic because, again, part of being a police officer is that you then need to be able to go uh, testify if somebody is being charged with whatever the crime is. And you, you really have to ask, uh, how it is that you can have officers that the crown do not consider uh, credible enough to testify that then continue to be police officers. I would love to hear a, a response, uh, a, a response to that, that sort of puts my concerns at ease. Um, but then in terms more, again, moving on to the very important discussion of sort of, of reform of defunding of reallocation of resources. Yeah. I think that, you know, we know that, uh, and Calgary Edmonton is no exception that by far the biggest ticket line item on the municipal budgets is, are the police services. Uh, there's a huge amount of resources that go in things like, you know, social housing and other types of, uh, you know, uh, uh, social housing. And then, you know, for other types of sort of income support, et cetera, are just a drop in the ocean, uh, in comparison. And, uh, you know, we, there's been a whole battle. I don't know if, if for folks in Edmonton, if they've been following it in Calgary, but, uh, you know, the city council in Calgary had originally sort of agreed to uh, reallocate, I believe it would have been uh, 5% of the budget over the course of two years. It's a little bit misleading because that actually like amount of money was, I believe, technically an increase to their pre-existing budget. So whether or not that's, you know, it's, it's, there's a semantic issue there. Uh, but that was just last week. That was like at least partially reversed. In that case, it wasn't the police department. The police department had accepted this. And actually it had been the current chief Newfeld. Uh, who had originally made a sort of commitment to participate in this process to some extent. Uh, it was actually a city council that basically then, uh, as per the reportage on this, gave them more money than they required. Um, but in terms of alternatives, like there's so many different things we could look at. I think a really, really great place to start, and a lot of people are focusing their energy on, is uh, exactly what you said, is non-police uh, responses to people in crisis, uh, be it mental health, be it drug related, be it uh, housing or homeless, uh, you know, somebody in, in need in that respect. Um, 
the preliminary numbers, and possibly these are sort of underestimates, out of, I think, Calgary and Edmonton, there seems to be an agreement or an acknowledgement by the departments that at least 30%, you know, of all their calls fall into these categories, which seems to me, um, you know, to make a pretty compelling argument that, you know, those resources could and should be sent elsewhere. Now, as uh, Mark Neufeld, the chief in Calgary, has pointed out, it's like, okay, well, if the resources are being shifted, we actually then, like, those calls need to actually, like, be going elsewhere. So what that looks like, uh, there's many, of course, possibilities that could be going to, you know, in Toronto, we have a model where there's sort of a crisis response team that is funded by the province that over the past 30 years has, uh, you know, has it's thousands and thousands and thousands of calls that have been redirected. Uh, and they have a specific relationship with sort of hospitals where they can expedite a hospital bed. There's many different ways to go. And I always like I like this notion, um, you know, and as a son of a social worker, I grew up hearing a lot of stories of you know, my mother was involved in for a time, you know, doing like, for example, child apprehension work, you know, where you go uh, with a police officer, essentially, when you're going, say, to a house where there's a bad situation and a child needs to be removed, um, you know, that you actually, you know, you go with police because it might not be safe because there's some sort of abuse or violence or whatever it is that's going on. So to me, I always like the idea is that this seems to me a really easy starting point is, you know, how about we have more teams uh, and this could be actually quite common. This could be many of the teams where you're pairing, say, a, a conventional police officer with whatever, you know, for better or worse, their skill set uh, with, say, a social worker. Um, and that that would be your team. And that that would I would think those complementary, uh, you would hope, uh, skill sets would would have uh, really you know much better responses than just uh, two cops who don't have that extensive post-secondary training uh, and, and years of experience dealing with those uh, those uh, those issues. Yeah. I mean, uh, to go back to your uh, list of untrustworthy cops, I definitely uh, also want that list. So yes, please, folks, if you're a crime prosecutor and you're listening to this and you've got access to that list, uh, please slide into my DMs. Uh, I will make sure that your confidentiality is assured. But it also just as someone who is a, a proud supporter of unions and the labor movement, and I don't think we have any meaningful uh, change for working people without uh, strong unions, uh, cop unions were a mistake. And there's actually recent research that backs this up that just shows that like with the advent of cop unions in the 50s, uh, that they became uh, more violent and more unaccountable institutions. But uh, the final thing, the final way I want to close out this conversation is is something that I think I, I struggle with. You know, I write about these issues at the Progress Report. You know, I also write about another giant, venal, impenetrable, violent institution, you know, the Alberta government. And And the thing about these institutions is that they're just not interested in change, right? It's it's the old Upton Sinclair quote over and over again. It's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. And and so what I struggle with is like what what do these stories ultimately do in the context of change? You know, when we've looked to other jurisdictions when there where there has been real change, you know, people burned down a police station or they were out in the streets for literally months, like in Portland, setting up their own autonomous zones or they're creating their own institutions that, you know, of mutual aid, they care for people and keep them safe. Um, you know, I'm ultimately I'm a storyteller. I'm not uh, doing that work. And so I do want to feel that this work is important, but, uh, but help me out here. What, what is, uh, how do we improve the lives of our social, uh, how do we improve the lives of our fellow human beings through this kind of storytelling? Well, I think for us, there's a real feeling that the only way that this this kind of change is is going to actually happen but also stick is if you get more people on board with it. 
And, I, you know, as effective as it might be to like, you know, burn down a police station or something like that, it, I don't know that the broader society, certainly in Alberta, would respond positively to something like that. And I don't think that that's where people are at as like a general and having lots of friends and family in Alberta and Calgary. I can attest to this, that this is not sort of the average response. People would look at that as not a positive thing at all. And I, or many people would. And so I think part of it is, you know, the, the bubbles that we find ourselves in where we are so convinced that this is the right way forward. A lot of other people may not be so convinced. And so part of our goal with this film is to just make a, a set of stories and, and a narrative that really is, uh, is translatable to people who aren't interested in these issues. So people who do not care about reallocating funding from police or who do not care about wellness checks gone wrong or accountability and to make them care. And uh, I think that's really the part of the value of, of the storytelling is to just make people care about something that's not on their radar. And I think so far the reaction to the film uh, has been to do that. We're getting all kinds of, uh, and I think, you know, that's part of the benefit of Constable Harris is, uh, you know, bringing this suit, if, there, if you can say that there's any sort of positive side, is that people who would not have been interested in this film or who would not have heard of it are now getting a chance to see it, are now watching that excerpt, which has been circulated on the internet and sort of the beginning of this whole thing that uh, uh, is very horrifying and the Clayton Prince incident. And I, I think a lot of people in Calgary would be shocked to learn this is how the police are behaving. So in terms of our role, it's to, I think, first and for, foremost, make people aware that these issues are massive, that they affect people. I, I think it's sad, but there's a reality where people have to see themselves. And if you're, you're you know, People like them, like the Heffernans, like Godfrey, like the Howarths, you know, a variety of people from across different spectrums of society are all negatively impacted by this, uh, by this issue. And so if you can appreciate that this is a massive problem, uh, maybe we can actually move the needle on where public opinion is around these issues and rather than just having a, a knee-jerk reaction. By the same token, I think it's really sad what the city council didn't do the right thing and that you know, rebuffed the police's offer to basically reallocate some of this funding. And I think it shows you how far we have to go in terms of, you know, what's the accountability for those counselors on that vote? And, you know, are they actually reflecting what people want out of the police? The, you know, I'll just, I'll just jump in. I think that, you know, I like we, for, I, I'm of the opinion that, you know, uh, you know, as, as Ravinder pointed out, you know, there's certain strengths to a long format documentary. You know, we, the, the original, this, you know, film broadcast in the summer in a shorter version called Above the Law, which you can find for free online uh, through CBC, it was broadcast then as well. I mean, there's a value in, you know, a film, you know, of, of that length that's on, you know, kind of conventional television, et cetera, that reaches a certain audience. There's an, a value in the longer uh, version. And, you know, and these to me, like none of this is a replacement for, say, the kind of, you know, hard, hard hitting investigative journalism and, you know, these types of discussions that we're having right now. Uh, these to me are all, you know, uh, a piece of, of a bigger uh, discussion and a bigger effort. I will say that I do think that having the, you know, concrete, and we can see this in this, you know, in the States, you know, and in Canada, you know, that having specific incidents that people understand the stories, they empathize with the people involved. That's really, I think, a, 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 a something that people that galvanizes a movement. And, um, and that seems to me really important. And I don't think that we had, uh, I think in Canada, uh, partly just, you know, because these issues have been flying under the radar, we haven't had that kind of um, that kind of attention. So I do think that, you know, and we saw this, this was a huge, huge deal, you know, in Calgary when there were major, well, and across the country around the world, you know, major protests back in, uh, 
you know, in the early summer, uh, post, uh, you know, uh, the death of George Floyd, you know, that in Calgary, for example, Godfrey was one of the featured speakers at one of the major rallies, um, or that, that I believe was billed as a vigil, uh, you know, at Olympic Plaza. And there's thousands and thousands of people there. And you have to, you know, you have to understand that for Godfrey, who has, you know, for years in relative isolation, and he's very lucky that he has, you know, or he finds himself very lucky he's had the support of, of friends, but has really been very alone in this process. All of a sudden, there's thousands of people getting together who want to hear what he have to say that want to provide him support. I mean, that's a huge, huge, um, that's a huge, I think, um, step forward in many respects. Um, and the fact that you have sort of specific stories that, um, you know, the Heffernans, you know, is what had been the one that had had the more, most press before. I'll also point out that in the context of um, sort of the judicial process. So there was a hearing um, in relation to the, so uh, Constable Trevor Lindsay, who was, who was found guilty of aggravated assault in spring 2019, still has not been sentenced. So that sentencing has been delayed several times. It was supposed to be fall of last year, then it was delayed to the spring, and then now it's been delayed again. Uh, only part of that can be attributed to COVID. And now it's been scheduled for next spring. So it's going to be basically almost two years between the uh, between the uh, verdict and the sentencing, which is just outlandish. But one of the things that came up at the hearing uh, was that the Crown prosecutor in that case uh, specifically referenced the film, the CBC version, and stated uh, something to the effect that, you know, having seen that film, he be became aware of the, uh, of, the, in, of the previous incident with Godfrey and the video, et cetera. And he stated at the time that he's exploring whether or not it makes sense to uh, call Godfrey to testify. And to sort of and to include that in the sentencing hearing, which apparently has been booked for something like six days, which is also, I think, quite um, I've heard of. So I think there's a lot of it. I know in city council, the film's been referenced numerous times. Uh, it's been, you know, that excerpt that uh, Ravinder mentioned has been that has uh, is what sort of sparked the whole uh, Constable Harris suit in the first place, uh, I think, has been uh, circulated and used sort of as a tool in um, in City Hall for these discussions. So. Anyways, I mean, we remain optimistic that, um, you know, that change is possible. I always, you know, like to point out, it's like, if you know, that really the task at hand is in a most basic sense is to, you know, just, you know, our public employees to make sure that they are performing their jobs in a way that is legal and efficacious and that they are held accountable, broadly speaking, if they're not. And like, that seems to me uh, <laughs> something that should be relatively tangible and relatively easy to achieve. Then there's the bigger piece to do with redesigning the system. And, you know, I think that's a, a longer term project, but I mean, uh, it's, uh, I think we need to be, I think as people that are care about these issues, it's important for us to be uh, optimistic and to, uh, and to have some degree of confidence that even in a province like Alberta with the kind of government we're dealing with, et cetera, that um, I'll point out that it's not just the public that actually, and we've heard time and again from, uh, current former officer, like, you know, current uh, employees of the Calgary Police Service and former officers that we've spoken to, you know, the current system as it's designed and as it's functioning and the kind of antagonism and these kind of, you know, shortcomings, I mean, it's not serving the the public and it's not serving the officers either. Uh, there's very telling stats that have been released by Calgary Police Service of internal, um, and we didn't even get to discuss the whole piece to do with HR problems, bullying, harassment, and intimidation, invite everyone to watch the film and you can sort of uh, see some treatment of that. Uh, but the morale within the police department has just plummeted in recent years. So the officers themselves, it's not like they're all, you know, running around, you know, with, with this perfect level of satisfaction as to their jobs. Like nobody is being served by the, this, by the shortcomings in the system as it stands. So, um, yeah. 
I hear you. I mean, me and posing that question is kind of me at my most depressed, right? When when I when I just see another like shoulder shrug about uh, uh, the latest story you write or produce, right? And it's mm-hmm. ultimately the work is important because you do have to do that narrative work in order to get people to the point where they're like, oh yeah, I guess we should uh, defund the police because the police do all of these terrible things. So uh, I, I get it, but I, I think asking that question, having that conversation is important. Um, Mark and Bender, we got to wrap it up, but what uh, is the best way for people to see this film and support your work? Uh, the floor is yours. Go nuts. So uh, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, the film is currently available through uh, Cuff Docs. It'll be through the end of uh, Wednesday, uh, let me just get the date right. Yeah, Wednesday, December 2nd. Actually, you know what? It might be wrapping up tomorrow, the 1st. Um, stay tuned. Basically, I would. we're, we're actually hoping to start uh, doing some theatrical screenings. There's more festivals coming up. All of that uh, will be posted on our socials. Uh, we're at Above the Law Doc on uh, Instagram and Facebook or at Lost Time Media at Twitter. And also... Uh, uh, again, the shorter, uh, so it's 44 minutes versus the 97 minutes. That is no visible trauma above the law. The shorter piece uh, is available uh, through CBC. If you have the CBC gem uh, app, uh, you can watch it through there. You can also watch it online through their, um, uh, through their YouTube page as well. So if you just search above the law CBC, it'll come up there. And don't forget your GoFundMe. Where's, what's the, what's the, Ooh, the GoFundMe. The yeah. Uh, if, if you search uh, it again, it's through the same, um, the same socials, you'll be able to find it, but legal fund for filmmakers sued by police officer is the title of the GoFundMe. Um, uh, so I think if you search no visible trauma, GoFundMe, it'll also come up there as well. And we'll put a link in the show notes too, but right it's also on. in case people are listening and want to get those thumbs rolling. That's, that's the best way. And, um, yeah, folks, if you like this podcast and you want to keep hearing more podcasts like it, there's a few things you can also do to help us out. Uh, biggest thing is word of mouth advertising. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your dog walker. Uh, I don't care. Uh, just if you think someone would enjoy listening to this content, um, tell them about it. Send it to them, text, text it to them, share it to them over messenger. However you share things, do it. Uh, one other thing that helps us real fast is reviewing us on iTunes. Uh, really does help people find the show uh, five star only, of course. And, um, and the final ultimate thing you can do to help us uh, keep this independent media project going is go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons, put in your details, p- donate whatever you can per month. Uh, small monthly donations are what keep this, this project alive, helps keep me and Jim fed and in groceries. And, uh, and yeah, we would really appreciate it if you could do that. Also, if you have any notes, thoughts, comments, things you think I messed up on, things you think I need to hear about, I'm very easy to reach. I'm on Twitter at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me by email at uh, DuncanK at ProgressAlberta.ca. Thanks so much to our guests, Mark and Ravinder, for joining us. Thanks so much to Cosmic Family Communist for the amazing theme. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.